Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. The goodness of God. Verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe your precepts. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to teach us more of your goodness. We read here of how good you are in all the circumstances of life and how they are meant in, in order to produce good and righteousness in us and more faithfulness toward you. May we understand this better and never distrust, never doubt your goodness. In the name of Christ, amen. Indeed, it is the case that in this passage... David, the prophet of God, the man of God, the believer, he is focused on the goodness of God. He acknowledges that God is a good God in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant. He dealt, God dealt well with David, the servant of God and the man of God. This concept of the goodness of God is a concept that all of us need to have at the center of our life. We have to have as this focus, as this assumption, that God is a good God. The thing that happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve was on the basis of them doubting the goodness of God. They believed the serpent, the devil, in that the devil convinced them that there was something that God was withholding from them that made God not so good. He appeared to be good, in the eyes of Adam and Eve, according to the serpent. He appears to be good, but he's not really good. So don't believe everything he says, and don't believe in the promises of God, and don't believe in the threats of God or the judgments of God. Don't believe them, because he's not good. You have the ability, you have the the wherewithal to understand what is good and right in your own eyes. Just do what you think is best, and you'll be just fine. This is what the serpent convinced Adam and Eve of, and this is why they sinned. But the believer, the one who has a new heart, the one whose eyes have been opened, whose ears have been opened, whose heart has been changed, the believer now trusts the goodness of God. He does not trust it all the time, faithfully, but he does trust it in a way that he did not trust the goodness of God before he was a believer. He knows that God has good intentions for him to save him from sin, to help him to overcome the trials of life, and in order for him to reach the final destiny in seeing Christ face to face. All of these are good things that God does for his people. David understood this, and this is what he acknowledges in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant. David was unredeemed and became redeemed. David was a child of the devil and now he is a child of God. David used to walk in darkness, but now he walks in the light. He knows this. He knows that his sins are forgiven. He knows that he has been justified in Christ. He knows that eternal life awaits him. 
He knows that nothing will separate him from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He knows all this. He knows all these spiritual benefits. To say nothing of the material benefits. David was well provided in material things. God provided all of his needs with food and with covering. God gave David all these things. He even gave him notoriety and blessing in that sense, and honor, in, in that he became the king of the nation of Israel and became the first righteous king of the nation of Israel. And God even made a spiritual promise as both king and a godly man gave him a spiritual promise that his single descendant, Christ, would have an eternal throne. That David, although he lived in 1000 BC, one of his descendants would come, Christ Jesus, a son of David, would come into the world and be the eternal king with an eternal kingdom. All of these promises and all of these good things God gave to David. He dealt well with the servant of God. It's not as though, however, that God does this only for David. He will do so also for us. Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God also does good for all of us. Not only David, we might think he was a prophet of God, he was uniquely called by God to do this or that, but God doesn't do good for me. He doesn't do good for us. It's not true. Romans 8.28 is a promise, 8.28 to 30, is a promise for all believers that God is a good God and He works out difficult situations in our life for our good, for our benefit. He does it for us. But we have to consider ourselves to be His servants. We have to consider ourselves to be those who are enslaved to Christ. We have Christ as our master. We were slaves of sin. Now we are slaves of righteousness. We have to look at ourselves as servants of God. God can do whatever He wants with us, give us whatever command He wants, and we ought to consider it good because He's our master. We ought to consider it good because our master is a knowledgeable master. Our master lives in heaven. Our master is omniscient. Our master is omnipotent. Our master has the ability to help us and work through whatever it is that we are doing. If He commands something, we ought to consider it good. Because we belong to Him in this relationship. Sin is no longer master over us. We are no longer slaves of sin. Because the Son has made us free from that slavery to sin. We also note in verse 65 that it is the Lord who according to His word will do this. According to His word. His word promises that He will never leave us nor forsake us. His word promises that I am with you always, even until the end of the age. His word promises that we will receive eternal life and meet Christ face to face. His word promises all these things. So when His word teaches us these things, these are the promises that should be fixed in our minds. We should put our hope in those promises and have conviction on those things. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. For He endured as seeing Him who is unseen. This is Hebrews 11 
1, 6, and 27. This is what happened with Moses. Moses understood, just as David understood, God is unseen, but he makes promises in his word. We can read these words. We can understand the, the thoughts of God and the intentions of God by this word of God. And by it, if we have conviction that this is true, we will live accordingly. We will obey. We will do whatever his word says. And it will give us hope. It will help us to endure whatever we need to endure. Verse 66. Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. On the basis of faith or belief in God's commandments, that the commandments are from God, not from the devil, that the commandments are good, not evil, that the commandments are for our benefit, not for our disdain and not for our demise. They're not for, uh, in the Bible to ruin us and destroy us. They're here to help us. If we believe in His commandments that they are this way, it will naturally lead us to pray, teach me good discernment and knowledge. People have discernment on many things. People are able to distinguish on many issues. They do so with their hobbies. They do so with sports. They do so in the workplace. They do so in many environments. They are able to discern uh, the right way and the wrong way, the good way and the bad way to handle this or that area of life. But how many of us actually ask God, teach me good discernment and knowledge on spiritual matters? On spiritual matters, on eternal matters. The things that we have discernment on here in this world, they don't matter. They only last for a, a temporary time. The things in this world don't last forever. The world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2, 17. We need to know the will of God so that we might remain and live forever. So we should ask God to teach us good discernment and knowledge. How is He going to do so? He does so by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. If we are familiar with the Word of God and we pray to Him for the Spirit of God to fill us and to guide us, to illumine us into all truth, He will do so. We need His Word and we need His Holy Spirit. Therefore, we ought to ask Him, teach me good discernment and knowledge. These two virtues of discernment and knowledge are not well respected these days. If we practice discernment, we will easily be maligned and jettisoned from our friendships. People will say, when we are practicing discernment, that that's wrong. They will allow for any and everything to go on all around them, but the moment we speak up using good discernment, God's good discernment, then we are accused of being slanderous, of being people who are troublemakers, people who won't get along with other people. No. When it is the will of God that we are practicing, when we are discerning what is good in the sight of God, it's good discernment, and we ought to do so, regardless of what the world says. And we shouldn't be disheartened. We, we sometimes think, because few people have discernment, spiritual discernment, we think that that's something that is not to be pursued. We get discouraged and we wonder, everybody else does such and such, so it must be right. It must be good. Everybody else says it's justifiable to be a spiritual person or to be a Christian and to do this or that thing, which the Bible calls sin and a few people call sin, but everybody else never calls it sin. 
Therefore, it's right. And we think that we should follow the other people. The scripture, however, warns us, you shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. And woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. Just because everybody does it, it doesn't mean it's right. We have to know what God's word says and use our rational capabilities in conformity with the word of God in order to know the difference between what's good and what's evil. This is what discernment is. Knowledge also is disdained these days. True knowledge, good knowledge, not just any knowledge. We do have vain knowledge. We do have the pursuit of speculations and things that are of no value. People do that all the time. They plunge themselves into that. All kinds of knowledge that is of little value. Little value because they are earthly things. But knowledge of spiritual things is good. It's good knowledge. It's knowledge that lasts. It remains. It's good to know the Lord. Is it not? Let us press on to know the Lord. Hosea 6 verses 1 to 3 teaches us. It let us press on to know Him. We have to know Him. And if we don't know Him, my people die for lack of knowledge. My people die for lack of knowledge. He says also in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. We have to have knowledge, but it has to be right knowledge, good knowledge, knowledge of the Lord. And if we don't have knowledge of the Lord, there is no eternal life. John 17, 3. For this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We need to have good knowledge, true knowledge, knowledge of the one true and living God. Not just any God, not just any religion, not just any holy book. No, the Bible, the scriptures, the word of Christ. This is God's word. This is the knowledge we must have. This is the only way of eternal life. Verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 67 and verse 71 are similar. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. He says it explicitly in 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. As well, verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. And all of his judgments, all of the things that he does, are righteous. Psalm 94, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and teach out of your law. Blessed is the man whom you chasten. God chastens, and the man who is chastened is blessed by God. And God teaches the man out of his law, out of his word, his holy word. This is all good, he said. All of this is good. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says likewise. Hebrews 12. We'll start at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. These texts are clearly teaching us that it's good for hardships, disciplines, rebukes, chastenings to happen to us. The Bible sometimes calls it chastening or afflictions. It's good for these things to happen to us because God has a good intention with those things. This truth teaches us a couple of things. For one, it teaches us that we are too proud, arrogant, haughty to have nothing happen to us. To have no turmoil, to have no discipline, to have no punishments. This is our human nature. Our human nature needs to be subdued, it needs to be humbled. We need to receive humiliation. It needs to happen, and it happens intentionally from God. Because if we don't have that, we will think that we are just fine people, we will think that we are great and good people. We, are th- we would think that we need to receive honor and respect from any and every person at all times, regardless of how we treat them. We would be puffed up with a lot of pride. More pride than people could tolerate. But God knows this, so this is why He brings afflictions. Because we would go astray in those ways if He does not bring afflictions to us. When He brings afflictions to us, either for our sin to punish us or regardless of sin in order to teach us endurance. You see, in the case of Job, Job did not commit any sins for God to afflict Job in Job chapters 1 and 2. In Job chapters 1 and 2, when we read those chapters very carefully, we read that there was no specific sin in Job That was the reason for all of the turmoil to come into Job's life. No specific sin. Again and again. Either the Spirit says it in the text. The narrative of the text. Or God says it to Satan. Or even Satan acknowledges the way that Job is. Before God. That he has not given up uh, his integrity. Even though he was incited against Satan. Uh, Again, Job was um, uh, attacked by Satan because God had sent him to to do that task. In any of this way, all of this way, it's very clear Job did not sin. And yet God afflicted him to teach him endurance, to teach him self-control, to teach, teach him patience, to teach him to trust in God regardless of his circumstances. Whether he had abundance 
or whether he was in want and needy. Whatever the circumstances, trust God. Believe in God. After all, are we going to trust God only because He gives us good things? Are we going to trust God only because He makes sure we have health and wealth until the day we die? Are we loving God simply for the material things of the world? Do we love God because of the things He gives us? Or do we love God for who He is? Well, all of us have some of this sin within us. That we love God only because of what He does for our benefit. Only because of that and not for His person. This is why it's necessary, even when we have not committed a sin and afflictions come upon us, to teach us self-control, to teach us humility, to make us love God for who He is, not for what He gives us. And David understands this. He understands it's good for these afflictions to come to prevent him from straying or from straying too long. It's good for afflictions to come to keep his word, verse 67. Or, verse 71, to learn your statutes. To learn to, and to keep, to obey the word of God. This is why it's necessary. David also experienced this in terms of his persecutions. When we read the Psalms, David had many, many persecutors. And we, many of us, do not understand David because we do not undergo the same kind of persecution. How often is it that we stand for righteousness and then somebody persecutes us? Somebody calls us a bad name. Somebody slanders us behind our back. Somebody takes something away from us, takes away our money, takes away our house, takes away our possessions, takes away our job. How many times has that happened to us that we have stood faithfully for God, according to the will of God, and then somebody persecutes us? We don't understand that. We don't learn that. That's why he says in verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. We don't understand the mind of David in the Psalms, because we've never experienced those things. Because we have not lived righteously. We have been astray too long. When we live righteously, then we will understand why David prays to God the way he does. About his circumstances, about his relationship to the Lord, about his uh, relationship to his enemies, and how he prays both for them and against them. We don't understand that because we don't experience it. But we need to. We need to consider that the afflictions of God, the circumstances of God, are good that we might learn to obey the Word of God. Verse 68. He hits at the heart of it. In verse 68. He's convinced of two truths. You are good, and you do good. These twin truths must be fixed in each of us. Believing that God is good and every man a liar. God is just and right and every man is false and evil. God is good and what He does is good for us. God is good and what He does is good for us. If we could have these two truths fixed in our minds day by day, we would be grateful, we would be humble, we would trust God, our faith would increase, our holiness would increase if we would just believe that God is good and whatever He does is good. 
But this is where we fail. We either think that God is not good, He's evil, and many unbelievers look at God this way, and that God doesn't do good. He doesn't know really what He's doing in this world. Things are out of control. Everything is hectic. There's no order to the things that are happening. No purpose in the things that are happening. God, therefore, must be evil. He must have a mixture of good and evil in Him, or He's not able to control how much good He does and how much evil He does. Whatever. They think that God doesn't do good. On the other hand, the man of God says God is good and He does good. We have to be convinced of this. And this is what drives him to say, teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. In this way, the assumption of God's goodness calls on him or prods him to say, teach me your statutes. This is the same as 65 and 66. I know who you are. I'm convinced of who you are. I know what you do. Therefore, I plead with you, teach me and answer me according to your word. Answer your promises uh, according to your word. When I pray and ask to be taught, when I pray and ask for wisdom and guidance, when I pray and ask for strength, teach me your statutes. 69. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart I will observe your precepts. David has lived so faithfully that arrogant people have risen up against him. They have risen up against him and they forge lies against him. Notice what he calls them. They're not humble people. If they were humble, they would not attack the man of God. They are arrogant people and they can't do so. They cannot pursue their arrogance based on facts and truths. They have to do so based on lies. They have to nitpick. They have to fault find. They have to find something he said or did and forge a lie. They need to put a color on it that's not the true color. They have to put a shade on it that's not the true shade. They have to say something about the man of God that isn't really true in order to convince other people not to listen to the man of God. Arrogant people do this. This is naturally and normally what they do. We shouldn't be surprised about this. Jesus had liars against him. The prophets had liars against them. The, the apostles had liars against them. Stephen, not an apostle. Stephen had liars against him that ultimately put him to death. All of us, when we follow God faithfully, we will have people, arrogant people, who rise up against us and spread lies about us. But what should we do? What should we do when that happens? Verse 69. With all my heart I will observe your precepts. With all my heart. He knows that he needs to observe or obey God's precepts. His word. So when these things happen to us. What, what we should do is seek the word of God. And say how am I supposed to respond to this attack? How am I supposed to behave according to God's word about this situation, this persecution? These liars are saying these things about me. What should I do? I should not overreact. I should not underreact. I should react according to the word of God. This should drive us, as it did David, with all his heart to know, what does the Bible say? 
I want to know what the Bible says so I don't overreact or underreact. I want to walk on the straight path and do what's in the Bible. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Even when the situation is precarious. Even when you are uncertain. You have to throw yourself onto the Bible and ask, what does God's Word say when all of this confusion is happening all around me? Verse 70. Their heart is covered with fat, but I delight in your law. Their heart is covered with fat. When he describes them this way, he's describing them as being content and luxurious people. People who have all the health and all the wealth, all the food that they could want. They are this way, and this life, the life of luxury, leads them to obstinance, leads them to disobedience, leads them to delight in those things rather than delighting in the Word of God. They would rather delight in all those possessions rather than delight in the promises of God. This is the way they are. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 5. He describes the people of his day. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so that it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord, on a nation such as this? Shall I not avenge myself? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? They don't consider this. Like Adam and Eve, they don't consider that they cannot hide from God in uh, behind a tree or in the middle of a tree or, or in the middle of trees. They cannot do so. The people, they are foolish, senses, uh, senseless. They have eyes and ears and a heart, but they are unresponsive. Their eyes are unresponsive. Their ears are unresponsive. Their hearts are unresponsive. The sea has its boundaries and it doesn't cross over, typically speaking. It does not cross over. But the people don't understand their own boundaries. That's the comparison he makes. They're so stubborn, they don't say in their heart, let us fear the Lord. They don't do any of this. 
Instead, they exploit people, they practice wickedness, they fill their houses with deceit and with, with greatness and with riches. They're fat, sleek, and they excel in evil deeds. This is the way evil people are. They don't understand the things of God. They are insensitive. They have so much fat on them that they are insensitive to problems. They don't know what's actually going on inside their beings. They're so fixated on material and physical and worldly things, they want nothing to do with the things of God. But David says, I'm not like that. I delight in your law. I delight in your law. He would rather, though he was rich, and others were rich, Abraham was rich, and at times Paul had wealth. I've learned to live in plenty and in want, he says in Philippians 4. Paul at times had plenty. But whatever the circumstance, Abraham or David, even Moses, had plenty in the court of Pharaoh, they knew the right perspective on those issues. They knew how to deal with them. And they loved the Word of God. They loved the Word of God. They loved spiritual and unseen eternal things. Jeremiah the prophet says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Jeremiah says, like David does, I delight in your law. They can be fat and happy with whatever they have, but I delight in your law. I want your law. I want your word. That's all that matters to me. I want to make sure I'm doing the will of God according to the word of God. That's the way we should be too. It's easy for us to be fixated on the worldly things that are all around us. Our friends talk, our family talk, we, uh, we are bombarded in the, in the television and, and on the internet with buy this, do this, go there, see this, everything, accumulate this and that. Everything is done like that and we are bombarded every day. But instead of desiring to have all the fat and the wealth of the world, we ought to delight in the law of God, the word of God. Yes, we do need food and covering. And with these we shall be content. We do need that. And even Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Yes, we do need the material things of the world. They are necessities. But don't call a luxury a necessity. Don't call the accumulation of this or that a necessity when it is really hoarding, when it's really trusting and really delighting and loving in those things. No, it is, we need to have the right perspective. Delight in the Word of God and not the things of the world. Verse 72. Verse 72. Having covered 71 and 67 together. Verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He says it again. Just like he said in verse 70, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The people of the world, they would rather be living in palaces 
They would rather have all of the luxuries and the wealth of the world and everything according to their whims and wishes at a, at a call just to beckon somebody to go fetch this or that for them. They would rather have that kind of thing, that kind of life, to be able to push this or that button to have all the, the many conveniences of the world. They'd rather be living in luxury with their clothing and all of their circumstances. They would rather have that than the Word of God. But here, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In some cases, it's impossible for the rich to overcome. It doesn't happen. You know in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, he knew of the prophets. He knew of the prophets. He knew of Lazarus' faith. He knew of his faith. He knew of the other people around him who had faith. And yet, none of that moved him. He did not want the Word of God. He did not love the law of God. He did not want to hear it and obey it. None of that. Then he dies, and he goes to Hades, to the place of punishment. He dies and goes to Hades, the place of punishment. Because he loved it so much, he had no concern for the Word of God. To obey it, to understand the Gospel, and to believe in Christ. He had no desire for any of that. The rich man, the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Luke 18, a rich young ruler approaches Christ and he thinks he's just a fine man. He's, he's a, a swell chap. He thinks he is that way. He thinks that he, he's kept all the commandments from his youth up. And Jesus knew that he did not do that. But he also knew where his focus was. His focus was his riches. And he told him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor and come follow me. And what did he do? He walked away grieving because he was one who owned much property. He walked away. He did not follow Christ. This must not happen to us. We must love God. We must love God and show our love for God by wanting to, to know His will and we know His will from His Word. We must love His will by His Word constantly. We, this is what we must do. Not be fixated on the accumulation of wealth. Not the love of money. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. No. It doesn't matter if we have thousands of gold and silver pieces. That should not matter. It should matter that we love God. And if we love God, we will have eternal riches. If we love God, we will have unseen things. Yes, it requires faith to know and believe in those un unseen things. But that's what God calls us to do. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent and believe in the gospel. Today is the day to understand and have a right attitude towards the things of God. Who wants a piece of gold or even a thousand pieces of gold to be the difference between heaven and hell? Isn't that a tragedy that many people would rather have a piece of gold in their hand or even a thousand pieces of gold and that's the difference between heaven and hell? No, Let's not be that way. Let us love God 
love God and prove it with our love for a neighbor as ourselves. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.